Okay. We're doing now Thursday of Parshas Mishpatim. Um, this whole week has been very long portions of Chumash with very long Rashi's, and now it's getting less. <laughs> All right, so we're in chapter 23, verse 6. You shall not pervert the judgment of your destitute person in his dispute. Rashi explains Evyonecha, the destitute person, because the root word is oiveh, which means to long, because this person is so poor that he longs for everything. He says nothing. Next verse, distance yourself from a false word. Do not kill one who is innocent or one who is righteous, or I shall not exonerate a wicked person. So what does this mean? Don't kill someone who's innocent or righteous. So Rashi says, this applies to the situation, we might not think of the person as so innocent or so righteous. But if someone leaves a court convicted and sentenced to death, and then one person says, no, 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 I have something that I could prove his, his innocence, we have to return him to judgment. Why? Because it says, don't kill someone who's innocent. So even though you met and you deliberated for four weeks on this case, or five weeks on this case, or five months on this case, and you're all done and you've exhausted every possible argument and you've voted him guilty, but if one person says, oh, I have a new idea that wasn't discussed yet, I have a new way to prove his innocence, you have to take him back to the courtroom and not allowed to kill someone who's innocent. Even though here he's innocent but not considered righteous, meaning righteous would mean he's vindicated by the court, and he wasn't vindicated by the court, but the court said he was guilty. So he's not righteous, but perhaps he's innocent. Um, conversely, if someone who leaves the court acquitted, meaning they say he's innocent, or the majority says he's innocent, and then someone says, oh, I have something that could prove he's guilty, we don't, we don't, we don't listen, why not? Because it says, don't kill someone who's righteous. Meaning, this one is righteous in judgment. No, 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 he's not righteous, he's not innocent. I, we can really prove he's guilty. Okay, he might not be innocent, but he's righteous, because he was found righteous in judgment. So don't kill someone who's innocent, even though he is not righteous in judgment, try to save his life. And don't kill someone who's righteous, meaning even though he's not innocent, but we don't want to hear more guilt because he was made righteous in the court. So a person could say, wait, so we're saying that we know this person is guilty of the crime. We know this person should be put to death. We just didn't have the proper evidence. And now someone's come with proper evidence and we're not allowed to listen to it, but we're, we're, we're letting him off the hook. It's not right. So God says, don't worry. I won't exonerate a wicked person. That's not your issue. And this is, in general, our perspective on all of these issues because it is so difficult for a Jewish tribunal court to find someone guilty, especially not guilty of death, because everything has to have witnesses and warnings and generally people are doing something really wrong. They don't, have, uh, they don't leave alive two witnesses who are going to give them warnings and can, can go to report it back to the court. So it seems almost impossible for us to find a wicked person, first of sin, guilty. We're told, don't worry. You, you have to do your jurisdiction. If in your jurisdiction you declared him innocent, even though you know he's guilty, and you feel so bad that you know he's guilty and declaring him innocent, don't worry, I have many agents to put him to death. I will give him whatever he needs to get. So in other words, we have to do our part, and we actually are very, very cautious in putting a person to death. But if we know he's guilty, we don't have to fear, because God will take care of him. Next verse. You should not take a bribe, for the bribe will blind those who can see and will make the righteous word crooked. Okay. 
So Rashi explains, don't take a bribe, even to judge truthfully. Meaning, we're not even here talking about saying, I know he's innocent, I know he's guilty, sorry. But now that I took this gift from him, I think I'll say he's innocent even though I know he's guilty. No. You're actually saying what you think is the truth anyway. Now, how do we know that? Maybe this just means what it normally means, which means if you take a bribe, you're taking a bribe to give the not fair verdict because we already warned against that. It already says don't pervert justice. So if now it's adding don't take a bribe, it can't mean don't take a bribe to pervert justice. We already told that. So it means even if you think it's okay, like I know Ruben's innocent. So Ruben's giving me a bribe. I'm allowed to take it. Anyway, I was going to posket him to be innocent. No, because a blind bribe will blind the eyes of those who can see. Meaning even a Torah scholar who takes a bribe, in the end his mind will become confused and his learning will be forgotten and his vision will become dim. His vision will become dim because of the bribe. So even though you're saying, oh, I anyway knew, the bribe will blind your eyes and will make crooked righteous words. So according to Uncle, this means the bribe will corrupt you. So even though you, you, you think, oh, you're doing anyway the righteous thing, the taking of the bribe will corrupt you. And Rashi explains his righteous words means words that are justified, judgments of truth, upright words. But these upright words, you're anyway going to poskin him innocent, and he is innocent. Somehow, by taking the bribe, these words are going to get corrupted. Next verse, you shall not oppress a stranger. You know the soul of a stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. So Rashi explains, don't oppress a stranger. And Rashi says, in many places, the Torah warns regarding stranger. The stranger here means the convert. Because it, it be, sorry, because he has this nature of going back to evil, meaning he'll be inclined to be guided by his evil inclination, meaning he's liable to revert to the behavior he was accustomed to before he converted. So if you're treating him in this inappropriate way, it'd just be very easy for him to slip. And the verse said, you know the soul of a stranger, meaning the soul of a convert. And we're actually saying how hard it is when they oppress him because you were in that position yourself. Next verse, six years you shall sow your land and you shall bring in its crops. Six years to sow the land and bring in its crops. The word here of bringing in, it means like to bring into the house. That's the meaning of this word. And in the seventh, you shall let it go and leave it alone. And the destitute of your people shall eat, and their remnants, the beasts of the field, shall eat. So shall you do to your vineyard and to your olive grove. The Rashi explains you should let it go from work and leave it alone from eating its fruits after the time of removal. That's one version of how Rashi explains these words. Or you should let it go from complete work. You can't work real work like plowing or sowing. And you shall leave it alone from fertilizing and hoeing. And it said, the destitute of your people should eat, and leftovers the beasts of the field shall eat. So we're comparing here the food of the poor man to the food of the animal. What's the comparison? Just as the animal eats without tithing, without giving away a tenth, so too the poor can eat the fruits of the seventh year without tithing the fruit. Because it's saying that the poor here is eating as the animal is eating. And that's why our sages say there's no tithe on the seventh year. And so she do your vineyard and your olive grove, meaning 
if we look here at the beginning of the verse, it's talking about a field of grains or legumes or vegetables, which is interesting. Rashi gives an interesting expression. He calls it the field of white, meaning it's not shaded by trees. An orchard has trees, but here you have the hot sun making it white because there's no trees in such a field. And similarly, we're going to have the exact same law with the vine, and we have the exact same law with the olives. For a six-day period, you should do your work. Now, on the seventh day, you shall desist, so that your ox and donkey may be at ease, and your slave woman's son and the stranger may be refreshed. Rashi explained, what are we talking about here? We're talking here about keeping Shabbos. Now, why are we talking about keeping Shabbos? We were just talking about the sabbatical year, the Shemitah year. Why are we talking about Shabbos? Because to remind us that even on the sabbatical year, we still have to keep every week's Sabbath. In other words, a person could say, this entire year is a Sabbath. So the entire year is a Sabbath. I don't need to observe this once every seven-day weekly Sabbath as well. I have a double Sabbath? No. It's in a sabbatical year. And in the sabbatical year, every seventh day, keep the Sabbath. So that your animals should be at ease. So we're told here that we have to let and allow the animals to be at ease, which means, what does it mean for an animal to be at ease? The animals should be allowed to pluck and eat the grass from the ground. Others say, wait, maybe that's not what it means. Maybe I should confine the animal indoors so it shouldn't pluck the grass on the Sabbath. But that doesn't make sense because we said the animal should be at ease. If the animal is locked up so not to eat the grass on Sabbath, the animal is going to be in pain. And also to the son of your slave woman, which is an uncircumcised slave, even to such a slave, we still have to give them this rest. In other words, Rashi has to say that because the verse previously had told us that a circumcised slave must rest on the Sabbath. So here we're talking about a slave who's not circumcised, but also he has to rest on the Sabbath. And the stranger, the stranger doesn't mean, as we said before in the previous verse, that stranger meant the convert, because obviously the convert has to rest. I mean, he's a Jew. The stranger here means what we call a ger teishav, a resident alien, someone who's a non-Jew who took upon himself the keeping the laws of Noah, the prohibition against idolatry, and again, all what sort of a, uh, some, the sages say also, all of the seven Noahide commandments. Now, there's different opinions on what's the restriction on this Gertesh of his resident alien. Obviously, it's not like the restriction of a Jew. He's not a Jew. He's a non-Jew who wants to live in Israel. And because he wants to live in Israel, he took upon himself to keep the seven laws of Noah because if a non-Jew lives in our land, we have to enforce that he keeps those laws. So he's not doing it because he's inspired to have a connection to God, per se. We're assuming he's doing it because he wants, he likes to live in this land. It's good for his business for whatever reason. So therefore, he does have some laws here, some restrictions, but not like a Jew. According to one opinion, he's allowed to do the work on the Sabbath that a Jew could do on a holiday. According to another opinion, he could do on the Sabbath what a Jew could do on the Chol HaMoed. Others say he could work on the Sabbath, but he can't work for a Jew on the Sabbath. Others say no, even for himself, there's restrictions on what he's allowed to do for it on the Sabbath. Next verse. 
Be watchful of all that is said to you. The name of the gods of others you shall not mention, nor shall it become heard through your mouth. So when it says, be watchful of all I have said to you, this makes every positive commandment have an element of a negative commandment, meaning every watching in the Torah is a negative commandment. That's saying, guard from, it's a prohibition. It says you should not mention the name of other gods, meaning, don't even mention it. Like Rashi says, don't tell someone, oh, wait for me by such and such an idol, or stay with me on the holiday of such and such an idol. You're not serving that. I don't use it as a point of reference. No, we're told we're not allowed to mention idols. Or, another way of understanding this verse and how we link these two ideas of be watchful of everything I've said to you, the name of the gods of others shall you not mention. So it's teaching us that the prohibition against idolatry is as important as all the other commandments combined. And being careful with this prohibition of idolatry, we're considering it. That's what the verse means here to say. You're being careful with all the prohibitions. So it said, the name of God the other you shall not mention, nor shall become heard through your mouth. Which means even a non-Jew, you shouldn't do something through your mouth that you shouldn't, for example, form a partnership with a non-Jew that he's going to swear to you by his idols. There was a dispute between you and the non-Jew that he would swear to you by his idols. Because if he did so, that means you're causing a non-Jew to mention his idols. And it says here, or shall not become heard through your mouth, that you shouldn't do something someone else that the non-Jew will mention his idol because of you. Next verse, three times a year shall you celebrate for me during the year. Um, now the word in Hebrew here is regolim, regel, which Rashi says it means times and he brings a proof text where it means times. Usually actually regel means like the foot. Next verse, you shall observe the festival of matzos for a seven-day period. You shall eat matzos that I have commanded you. They point to time of the month of the first ripe produce. For on it you left Egypt. They shall not be seen before me empty-handed. So we're told that the time of the holiday of Passover is the month of the first ripened produce. At this time, it's like when the crops become full with moisture. That's we're saying the word aviv is from. So it relates to in the Hebrew, abiyaha. It became full with moisture. Or another way of understanding it is the word aviv is from the root word of, which is a father meaning it's like the firstborn is the earliest month for the ripening of the fruit. So Rashi is looking at the word aviv, and either he's pulling out abieha, because filled with her moisture, or aviv of is like the firstborn of the fruit, the first ripening of the fruit. And don't see come before me empty-handed, meaning when you come before me on the festivals, on the three festivals of the year, when every Jew is commanded to go to the temple on the Sukkot and Passover and Shavuot, during those times, you have to bring with me offerings of oila, offerings that completely burnt up for God as coming to me with, with gifts, not empty-handed. We'll stop here.